The Guardian. Greetings and welcome to The Guardian Film Show, boldly going into the darkness to seek out strange new movies, far-flung civilizations and self-absorbed stars. Be advised that this daring mission should take about 20 minutes or so. We'll be home in time for tea. Looming up on the starboard side, the Somali pirates are raising hell in the Danish thriller A Hijacking. The fish factory is closing down in Village at the End of the World, and Matthew McConaughey is up the creek without a shirt as the runaway fugitive Mud. But naturally, we open with Star Trek Into Darkness, J.J. Abrams' eagerly awaited sequel to the reboot of the 1960s space opera. We sent The Guardian's Andrew Pulver down to meet the filmmakers Abrams, Damon Lindelof, and our own Simon Pegg, who co-stars as Scotty. Captain on the bridge! Lieutenant! We have an open channel, Mr. Spock. The heat's frying his comms, but we still have contact. Spark! I have activated the device, Captain. When the countdown is complete, the reaction should render the volcano inert. Yeah, and that's gonna render him inert. Should we have use of the transporters? Negative, sir. Not with these magnetic fields. I need to beam Spark back to the ship. Give me one way to do it. Uh, maybe if we had a direct line of sight... If Hold on, Lee, man. You're talking about an active volcano, sir. If that thing erupts, I can't guarantee we can withstand the heat. I don't know that we can maintain that kind of altitude. Our shuttle was concealed by the Ash Cloud, but the Enterprise is too large. If utilized in a rescue effort, it would be revealed to the indigenous species. Spark, nobody knows the rules better than you, but there has got to be an exception. No. I, I, I was a fan, really, when I, since I was about nine, and they used to show it on BBC Two at six o'clock at tea time. Um, it was it was a post-Star Wars thing for me, because Star Wars hit when I was about seven, and it was you know, the, the exact right t uh, mood and tone for a seven-year-old. And then as my interest in science fiction became more sophisticated, Star Trek was perfect because it's a little more philosophical and with the absence of sort of the special effects budget that we have, they concentrated on sort of little morality plays and stuff. They're quite theatrical. So I, I, by the time I got to be in Star Trek, I was uh, yeah, an absolute dedicated fan. The first Star Trek that I ever saw was Wrath of Khan, the, uh, the movie. and. Uh, I, w I went to summer camp and it was pouring rain outside. They took the entire camp and they put us in a bus and sent us into town and bought out the entire theater. And they showed us that movie. And when it was over, the entire camp said, again, again, again. So they showed it to us three times that day because it was still raining. And that was my, my first exposure to Trek. Let me explain what's happening here. You are a criminal. I watched you murder innocent men and women. I was authorized to end you. And the only reason why you are still alive is because I am allowing it. So shut your mouth. Captain, you're going to punch me again over and over till your arm weakens. Clearly you want to, so tell me. Why did you allow me to live? We all make mistakes. No. I surrender to you because, despite your attempt to convince me otherwise, you seem to have a conscience, Mr. Kirk. It was always the big challenge, making this movie, to focus on, on both the spectacle and the sort of urgency and the absolute relatable comedy or drama uh, and humanity of the moments. And none of us can relate to what it's like to be in a spaceship that's tumbling towards Earth, but we all know what it's like to have an argument with a friend, to sort of you know, be, be disappointed or heartbroken terrified. I mean, these are, these are the things that we know, and if those things don't feel legitimate, then nothing else will. Joining me now is Peter Bradshaw and Andrew Pulver, The Guardian's very own 
Bones McCoy and Lieutenant Uhura. Peter, <laughs> were you a bit can of a... I, can I be Uhura? <laughs> <laughs> you can be Uhura next week. Okay, all right. We'll turn it. Were you a bit of a Trekkie back in the day? I loved, loved, loved the first uh, Abrams reboot movie in 2009. I thought it was brilliant and inspired uh, such a great thing to have a creation myth for Star Trek uh, and reinventing and putting front and centre the Kirk, Spock, as it were, bromance. Oh. Uh, I thought that was great. This next, next movie I liked. I think I liked it a little less than Andrew. I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. I had a bit of a problem, a kind of a fundamental problem in a way, with the villain who is John Harrison, a mystérieux and sinister uh, uber-villain played by Benedict Cumberpatch, whose stock price in the world of Thesp is huge right mm. now. I, at the risk of sounding churlish, I think it's due for a tiny bit of a market correction, really. I mean, I think he's a, a really good actor. He's really, really good, and after Sherlock, of course, his, his, mm. his, uh, his reputation is sky high. I think because he's so well, he's like and Spock, calm, isn't yeah, he? He's, like, he's like too much cool like logician. he's cool, logician, absolutely in control. Spock's already doing that. Mm. That's my problem with it. Zachary Quinto is already doing that and doing it, if I may say so, brilliantly mm. well. He has emerged once again as the absolute star turn of these films. Mm. Whereas Chris Pine, I find oddly charmless. I mean, he's a bit intergalactic, Jim Davidson. He's a bit. Jim <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a bit. He's a bit like Bill Shatner, really. Bill Shatner, the great man, was uh, always a little bit straight. He had to play it straight. Chris Pine plays it straight. I think he's fine. I, mm. I like Chris Pine, but perhaps uh, predictably, he's upstaged like hell by Zachary Quinto, uh, but Zachary Quinto upstages everybody. Andrew, it's a very entertaining summer blockbuster, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Peter's right to say that, you know, the sort of novelty, if you like, of, of the whole idea is, is perhaps worn off a bit. I found it very enjoyable and, and um, I, I, I sort of liked it. Um, I'd, I'd also agree with Peter that the, the sort of supervillain side of it is, is, is kind of weak. I mean, um, I think as I wrote in the review, it's just a sort of not a particularly interesting supervillain, really, even with the great revelation, which everybody will find out when they watch the film, about what he is and what, what he's up to. Does the franchise have in industry parlance legs, do you think? Is it going to get better, or is this the, the first kind of nudge down from where it was? I don't know. I think, commercially I mean, speaking, it must yeah. have legs. I think it but definitely also, Abram has legs. is clearly off. He's not going to do another one, I shouldn't mm. think. Mm. Um, presumably he'll produce it. I mean, he's, he's had the magic touch in sort of getting this thing back on back on the road because I mean I, again like Peter I, I was never a massive fan of these the last sort of 11 films or 10 films mm. nor nor did I was I really at all interested in the next generation series which I found a sort of dull plodding kind of thing um, and said you know Abrams although you know admittedly wasn't a fan a massive fan of Star Trek is the guy that sort of put a rocket under the whole thing if, if he's off then um, you know, it sort of might tread water a bit. This ship has no offensive capability. It's got us. Give me all six fuel cells. Aye, Captain. between the approaching structures. This ship will not fit. We'll fit, Captain. We will not fit. We'll fit. We'll fit. Outer Space Adventures in Star Trek Into Darkness. Let's now move on to another account of imperiled crew members and stricken ships 
Although this one veers a little closer to home. I'm the cook, I'm the cook, I'm the cook. Who's the cook? I am. Out in the Indian Ocean, a Danish cargo ship is seized by Somali pirates. Meanwhile, over in Copenhagen, the company boss haggles with the hijackers. And so Tobias Lindholm's stealthy, gripping thriller pinballs between the sweaty hold and the sterile boardroom. Salvation or sacrifice is just a phone call away. It's not like a normal business. If you want to go and buy a company, you'll make an offer, can offer, and that's the way it is. The mentality of the Somalis and the pirates is not like that. If we just give them the first demanded figure, they're just going to turn and say, well, thank you very much. This was a deposit. What we actually up. need is this. So we, we can't afford to do this. This is why it's protracted negotiations. Unfortunately, I mean, if I could just say, well, you need to pay 10 million now, take it home, poof, go. It doesn't work that way. If it did, yeah, it would be great. We'll be, we're out of here in a week. It's not going to happen, though. Mm. Andrew, there's a slight sense here of Danish TV heading to the big screen. It's full of actors that we're familiar with from The Killing and Borgen. And it's directed by Tobias Lindholm, who I think co-wrote the, the Hunt with Vinterberg, but also wrote Borgen, didn't he? And I have to say, I found this a very gripping, tense, very well-acted film. Um, very, all the characters are very well-drawn. But it did, at the risk of sounding, as people would say, churlish about it, uh, I, I did feel there were, it, in the end, there was a sort of overarching sense that this was high-end TV for me. It was very um, claustrophobic, very confined, in the, and it sort of felt like a single-location TV play on some level. And they, the, the way the drama was constructed was very much um, had that sort of, I don't know, Stephen Boschko feel where, where sort of mm. people were squabbling over their place in the hierarchy, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, there was the sort of big... Um, you know, there was the chief executive negotiating with the pirates. Soren Mailing yeah. as, as the CEO of the, yeah. of the company. And then the, but there were all his kind of guys who were working for him who were all sort of, you know, ang mm. you know sharp elbows angling for place and who's going to get the chair next to him, blah, blah, blah. You're saying and that as if it's a, a demerit. And actually, I kind um, of like that about I like that kind of grubby intimacy. Yeah, fact that saying, it, it, it sort of worked in many ways for it. It said it was tense and gripping. Um, I suppose I, I just think, I suppose, if, if you're making a film set in the Indian Ocean, be nice to have a wide shot of where you are, you know. There was nothing like that. Um, um, uh, didn't really get much into the pirates side of things, which I suppose it wouldn't necessarily have to be, because it was very much focused on yeah. this kind of main character, the cook. Um, I worried uh, that the pirates did just remain absolute yeah. kind of archetypes of, of implacable evil, really. Apart from one brief scene where they fish, yeah. and there's this kind of moment of camaraderie, and you worry that, that there's a sort of Stockholm syndrome going on that they're beginning to kind of bond more with the pirates than with the negotiators back in Copenhagen. It just seemed to sort of dispense with any sort of wideness of vision for me, width of vision, sorry, um, which I felt was, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe it's because you know it's the Borgen guys doing it that, that um, in advance, that, that it just seemed to be, to be in their comfort zone rather than what you would expect a sort of really major film to do is sort of push out of everybody's comfort zone, really, um, in, in the way it was set up. Hello? Hello, Omar, this is Peter calling from Denmark. Yes, hi, Peter. How are you? I'm good. Fine. Fine. Listen, Omar. Just to make it clear between you and me. I don't react on threats. Okay? 
but do you have any offer for me? Omar, I will not talk about the money until I have talked to the cook. Okay? So please, can you get him for me? Yes, yes, uh, he's right here. Hello? Mikkel, are you there? Yeah. Where are you? You have to do something, they're gonna kill me. So please get me home now. Please pay, or is they gonna kill me? Tense negotiations in a hijacking. We now slow the pace and change the mood. Village at the End of the World gives us a year in the life of a remote fishing community in Greenland. There are few thrills, even fewer fish. Sarah Gavron's haunting documentary leads us through the remote village of near Kornat, where the washing hangs out to dry amid the seal pelts and elk horns. The ice is melting and the fish stocks are dwindling, and the lonesome kids can only dream of escape. Peter, if the aim of cinema is to take us to places that you barely knew existed, then, then this really succeeded. I felt like I kind of lived there by the end yes. of it. Yes. I, I, what I thought was, was sort of great about it, the way Sarah Gavron, who is a, a feature film director who did uh, the version of Brick Lane uh, a while ago now, about five or six years ago, what she succeeded in doing very, very nicely was tuning in to the place, not just showing up and filming, but she kind of tuned in mm. to the vibe, mm. and uh, I, th I thought it was really nice. I've got to say, I, I feel like I've grown up all my life watching documentaries about remote village communities whose way of life is in danger of dying out. I mean, there must be very few villages left now yeah, without, and a been, film crew. without a film crew, <laughs> all of them dying out with film <laughs> crews there. Um, what was interesting about this movie, I sense that maybe Sarah Gavron's start, and she didn't know what her story was. Is her story about climate change, or is it about a much more local economic issue of this fish processing mm. factory? I suspect that she thought when she started that it was about climate change, mm. because she started off with this biblical quotation from about Noah's flood. And very clearly she thought that is the deal, that, that their way of life is being infinitesimally slowly eroded by the change in temperature of the fish fisheries and the waters and everything like that but then I think she was slightly surprised by no there's a new story a much more arguably more important certainly more immediate story mm. of this fishing uh, factory which is kind of going broke but can all the villagers six, 60 or 70 of them come up with a 2000 kroner or whatever it is to buy it out and turn it into a cooperative but uh, for one reason or other that's not the way Gavron chose to go with it she kind of had her three or four stars that she kind of isolated mm. were her kind of interesting characters, one of whom is this guy called Lars, this bloke who's 18 years old. He's on Facebook, he's on everything else, he's a Liverpool fan. He, the internet has made him a citizen of the world. He's not just confined to this little village in Greenland. And rather hurtfully for all the elders, he can't wait to get the mm. hell out of there. Andrew, how do you think you'd fit in in Nakornat? Uh, well, I think I'd be out there wrestling the polar bears on the ice. Yeah. You wouldn't have the sewage job that that man no, has. No, Oh, God, that, 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 that was, kind that of, was there pretty horrible. There was a bittersweet comedy to that, yeah. wasn't there? I did think there was a lot of blood in this film, which, which um, 
obviously when you're you know living the sort of existence they do which is right you know right at the edge very very little uh, processed food around i mean they spend a lot of time cutting seals up and polar bears and and um, the many scenes where the, the ice is sort of covered in gore mm. and there's mm. in in the sea as well um and the excitement about shooting the polar bear yeah they also we never see a polar bear around exactly. here but we just <laughs> shot one hooray <laughs> Peter, going back to your earlier point, is there something suspect about our interest in this? Um, there, there, it sort of alludes to it at the end where suddenly there's a, a, a boat of tourists who come to visit this place. And you think, well, then there's also this weird tourist industry of yes. let's look at the isolated community that's let's, dying on its arse. I didn't feel that I was being implicated in the tourist industry in the end, although possibly that is a, a piece of sleight of hand. Maybe I am, in fact, being implicated yeah, I mean, in the tourist industry. Maybe that's a little disingenuous by yeah. the filmmaker, which is... You know, that's what she's doing, and that's in what way, we're yeah. invited to do. And the sort yeah. of vastness to feel superior to these sort of sort of Danish pensioners who are sort of, you know, off on a cruise ship. We now leave the isolated fishing community at the end of the world and head over to Arkansas and upriver in the company of Matthew McConaughey's wanted fugitive. Help me, Rhonda. What are you doing? I saw that same boot print up in the tree. Director Jeff Nichols lights out for the Mississippi on mud, a pungent coming-of-age yarn in which two kids befriend Matthew McConaughey's cocksure runaway. Up ahead lies danger and harsh life lessons, and after this summer, things will never be the same again. Takes twice as long going upriver. Hold on. Up there, they stop. Where the hell did he go? I don't know. Andrew, this played in competition at Cannes about this time last year. It's taken a while to come, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, um, I actually spoke to Nick, Jeff Nichols, the director, last uh, week. And um, his his take on it was that it is, at, despite what it kind of looks like, it is actually quite a difficult in, um, independent film to sell. You know, um, perhaps that's saying something about the way you know classic American stories are now no no longer actually big. Yeah, big no longer box office. I mean, mm. this is this is essentially a Mark Twain story, Huck and Tom rewritten for the modern day. Um, it's about a couple of kids who discover a convict living on an island, or it's a fugitive on a convict li living on an island in the middle of the Mississippi. Um, it's yeah, it's straight out of Twain, um, and very very self-consciously so. Um, and the fact that he, um, said, Nichols said, he, even with the cast that he's got, that, it, that it's taken so long to actually materialise at the US box office, you know, maybe that says something about um, the whole, you know, the, the sort of cinema world as, as it is. Um, I personally found it um, uh, a little soft, little sort of, you know, it, it, you know telegraphing its moves fairly obviously all the way through. Um, it's not, for me, 
McConaug one of McConaughey's great modern performers. You know, everybody's been talking about his massive, his major sort of comeback. Mm. Not one of his best in that um, in, in, in that school. I still think he was great in Killer Joe, and, and uh, that's the sort of big one for me um, of recent years. Um, it sort of plays slightly to the um, more annoying side of him, Mr. Shirtless. Mm. Hey, I'm so charming. Um, but dangerous. But dangerous, well. dan yeah, dangerous too. Um, um, but having said that, it's it's a very sort of pungent story of it of it of a time and a place, which uh, I think is its main um, weapons, really. I think it it promises a heck of a lot more than it delivers. Although I do think Matthew McConaughey is very good in it. I think he's he's I think he was just right in the role, mm. and his relationship with the kids is very good, and it's beautifully shot, and all that stuff of the 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 islanded world of, of secrecy and adventure, that kind of Stand by Me stuff. I I think is great. Mm. I, mean, I love it. At the end, it turns into a bit of an episode of the Wonder Years, to be honest. At the end, but but uh, my goodness, uh, what a what a beautifully made film in some ways. Yeah, his last film was Take Shelter, which I really liked, but you were less convinced. By I was it. less convinced. I was a little bit agnostic about it. I thought there was an element of BS about the ending of that film. However, uh, it had the water cooler quality which, which this doesn't have. But this is very much more conventional, but beautifully shot. And another great leap forward for Matthew McConaughey, whose ascent from being kind of beefcake moron to really interesting kind of character actor is almost without parallel at the moment, I must say. But he's done a bit of a U-turn because he started off when he first showed up he was a sort of classy that's true and yeah. a time Lone to kill star. And all that. Yeah, yeah, Lone star. star and then he sort of yeah um, sort of went sold into out that's true that sold the, out that's true I wouldn't say sold out no you're right I would. as they always say it's important to sell out when you've got something to sell yeah and he obviously had something to sell he sold out um, and then bought back in again yeah so. Y'all need to be afraid of me. I got two ways to protect myself out here. This shirt and this pistol. There are fierce powers at work in the world, boys. Good, evil, poor luck, best luck. As men, we gotta take advantage where we can. Y'all coming? Matthew McConaughey and his name is Mud. That's it from us. My thanks as ever to the great Peter Bradshaw and Andrew Pulver. Next week, the Guardian Film Show is on the move. We'll be coming to you from the inner city crack den that is the Cannes Film Festival in the south of France. Thanks for watching. See you then. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.